I'm Junius Williams, your host on the podcast, Everything's Political. As you know, we look at the politics behind the scenes. We look at the less discussed, the less examined, sometimes the least examined. And today we're going to do some of that. This one is called What Happened to the Blues. I haven't talked about music before, but it's one of my very, very close, near and dear friends. That's music. And you say, well, what does this have to do with politics? This is not a blues show. I could turn somewhere else and get that, but listen to the subtitle. What happened to the blues, the politics of the music that you hear. And nothing gets me more riled up than to think about how that works. I've been listening to this in my mind for a long time, so I said, we're going to do a show about this. Let's start off with some little history for you. A man named Nguji Wadiango, he's a Kenyan intellectual, he talked about memory is what makes us who we are. And he said that once the Africans were brought to the United States as slaves, linguistic imperialism took effect, cutting off the linguistic connection to the continent. In other words, the most important thing we use to create and keep memories is language. So when that language was taken away and black people were forced to speak in English, a whole lot of religion and customs and history and especially the language itself, the meaning in the language itself, all of that was cut off. It was dismembered. But there was something that did retain in the African mind, and that was the music. The music. Reverend Wyatt T. Walker, one of Dr. King's lieutenants, pointed that out, that the, the, the music stayed. So that's why we have spirituals. That's why we have the blues. And from the blues came jazz, gospel, soul, funk. All of that was because of that African influence that they just couldn't dig out. So I'm going to make a bold statement here. All the commercial music today comes from the blues, but yet you hardly ever hear about it. And if you do hear about it, African-Americans don't get credit for it. And people have the audacity to call it old and therefore play it out. And you know what I'm talking about because some of you out there have done that just as well. Most of you out there don't even know what the blues is. So we want to show you some of that. If you don't have anything but that, you're going to learn something about the blues today. So I'm going to introduce my guest, Keith. Captain Gamble. He's about to come on. Keith the Captain Gamble. He's a singer, songwriter, actor, producer, jazz ambassador for the U.S. State Department and Europe and Africa. Some of my guests who were supposed to be here originally couldn't make it for one technical reason or another. And a young man who was very, very much involved in the blues. I wanted to introduce you to him. He's less than 25. He couldn't get it straight out with his record company. So if you don't do anything else, I want you to listen to Keith the Captain Gamble. How you doing, Keith? 
I'm doing great, Julius. Thank you for inviting me on the show. Hello, everyone. All right. So let's first introduce the blues to people. The blues is based on four chords that nobody else had thought to put together before. Of course, there was European music and all of these chords existed. There were eight tones in the European scale. There were only five tones in the African scales in most places. So here's what the African-Americans came up with. You got the first chord. You got the fourth chord. You got the fifth chord. And back to the first chord. Now that's the blues. That's what the blues is all about. As I said, nobody had done this before. So that makes it the first original music to come out of the United States of America. And it comes from the hearts and souls of African Americans. Am I doing all right, Captain? Tell me what you know about the blues. All right. Well, it is the original African American art form. There's only music that this country has produced on its own. There's no affiliation or, or accommodation to any other genre. It's just uh, our ancestors came here with nothing and created something. And that's our divine nature to create something out of nothing. We've been doing that since the inception of time. So how was that done? How do you, how do you think that uh, Africans, now African-Americans, got that job. And there was, there was some ingredients. You had uh, the spirituals, and then you had work songs mm-hmm. that people came. Before, even before the blues, there were, there, were, there were these work songs that uh, Africans were using to keep up their time in the field. Mm-hmm. Road gang songs were like that, too, as well. The prison song. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. Like Rosie. <laughs> uh, you know Rosie? Yeah. It's like, like a little Rosie. We got, got a little, um... Be my woman and I be your man. Be my woman and I be your man. Be my woman and I be your man. Got this Sunday dollar in your hand. When she wants, she reeling. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I want you to finish oh, that. Oh, I'm going to start. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Go ahead. Hey, Rosie, what a gal. Hey, Rosie, what a gal. Stick to the promise, girl, that you made me. Stick to the promise, girl, that you made me. Stick to the promise, girl, that you made me. And, and that whoop that you heard, that clap was where the pick was going into the ground or the shovel was going into the ground or the hole was going into the black earth because that's what they did. Now, originally, the Europeans didn't want us to go to church, but there was a conflict between sending black folks to church because they figured they might learn about Jesus and Jesus was all about freedom. But again, some very special music came from that experience, a mixture of the African and the European. You remember any of the, the spirituals that they had during back that time? I know about one that, that, they, um, that the captives 
this melody that the captives uh, sung. I don't know the original words. I know that the slave master put some words to it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, the one. That's an African melody. I don't want anybody to get confused or get it twisted. He heard them singing this when he brought loads and loads of captives. With, your, with the European captain who had a change in his heart, mm-hmm. he made amazing grace. And if anybody wants to play that, you can just play that all on the black keys, indicating the five-tone scale that I was talking to you about mm-hmm. earlier. Right. Now, where are you from, Captain? Uh, from Sugar Hill, Harlem. <laughs> but my background is um, Mississippi and South Carolina, Norfolk, Virginia. I used to go down to uh, my, my grandfather's farm every summer in Mississippi. And I uh, spent summers down there. Then I would go over to uh, New Orleans and hang out with my cousins there. And we hang on a Bourbon Street and sit in with those bands there. So I learned the harmonica in Mississippi. Uh, some of the uh, blues stuff like that in New Orleans and some of the jazz stuff in Harlem and just conglomerated to one style that became mine, I guess. Well, we have, we have one thing in common. I didn't know you had some Virginia roots, too. I'm from Richmond. Uh, I can't say that I learned to play the harmonica down there. I learned to play the harmonica in, uh, in Massachusetts and New Jersey, but I was surrounded by all that music and uh, that's that's what stayed in my soul. I played clarinet and saxophone, but the harmonica that's that's a that's a musician's instrument. That's really made for the blues. Let's see if we can play a little bit on that. We're, we're in there. I'm gonna leave it right there. I'm gonna leave it right there because we got we got to talk about the politics. But I want I want the people to get to know you a little better. Uh, and I understand that you uh, you play jazz, you play blues, you probably play gospel too. Oh yeah, we played uh, St. Luke Amy Church every Sunday. All right. Before okay. before the, the 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 virus struck, I done a a Zoom service for um. Salem Memorial Church. It was also located in Harlem, and we did like a a, a Zoom musical service with the uh, church band there. So we've got you as a blues man, a jazz man, a gospel man, and uh, people should know that all of this is that same root, Absolutely. and that's the blues. Absolutely. Look, look, you know, the spirituals came a little bit before, but then that translated upward. Mm-hmm to the blues along with those work songs and we had the blues. 
Now, when the blues came about, this was a little bit after slavery, so the master couldn't really say anything about them, but uh, at a certain point, the Europeans saw that this music was not only interesting, but it was commercially beneficial mm-hmm. if he could just get his hands on it. Right. So what, what happened then? Tell us what, 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 was, what was the history after that? Well, if you can't interpret something, you have to find a way of co-opting it. <laughs> That's what they did. They co-opted it, and then they tried to change the narrative to something they created like it's a, uh, an influence on Europeans. Only European influence we had in the blues is them whipping our behind <laughs> to give us the blues to play. <laughs> That's the only influence you can say with that. You know, and all, like you said before, so, all American popular music is derived from the blues. 75% of all jazz songs are blues changes. Okay, so that's the, the granddaddy of us all, is the blues. So how did the Europeans get a hold to this music? Well, they did some researches, and, and, and researchers came uh, from the Smithsonian and different other musical organizations and went into the Delta area of Mississippi and um, Arkansas to trace uh, this black American folk music, which is what it is. And even we were side by side with the European indentured servants. We taught them how to pick and how to yodel. Yodeling is an African art form. Okay, just like bagpipes is an African instrument. When Europeans came down the Crusades, they co-opted things and took them back to where they came from. But this is our music. the blue sound. Yeah, that's ours. (laughs) From uh, the blues to rhythm and blues and rock and roll. All right. Chuck Berry, you were just playing. Yep, but before that was the blues. Go ahead. And this came in and evolved into Chuck Berry. Then this Chuck Berry will evolve into uh, something else, 
a Jimi Hendrix or a Carlos Santana. All those things are, are, are from one stage to the next stage because we're constantly evolving. We're constantly evolving. That's why people say, "Oh, why is the blues dead?" Well, because graduated to something else. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about that stage where you were just with us with uh, during 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 that during that period of rock and roll, which was really rhythm and blues with a a new name. Right. Uh, you had people like Little Richard. You had Chuck Berry. You had Jackie Wilson, and then that was on the black side, and then on the white side, there were people like Bill Haley and the Comet. They told us Elvis Presley was the king of rock and roll. <laughs> and you had on on the jazz side, you had something called the Dukes of Dixieland, which was really had already been discovered by the folks who were playing New Orleans jazz. So I remember down in, in Richmond, we we used to laugh at uh, some of those folks who came in to copy what we were doing. It was not at all danceable the way we like to dance. You had Dick Clark's program. Uh, tell us a little bit about Dick Clark and those uh, those those folks who came in to copy the music and. They they did other things commercially too, right? Oh yes, they 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 handled most of the business aspect of it. Like James Brown once told a young Bootsy Collins, he said, "The show business is music business is seventy five percent business, twenty five percent music. So you can handle that music part, but you got to handle the business part because that's the most of the thing is we have to do it. They call the royalties." Uh, it's just payment for the artist uh, or producer or, I mean, um, the composer. You have um, mechanicals, which are certain aspects of how often the music is played in different venues and different stations and so forth. And you have the publishing, who has the rights to uh, the reproduction or the distribution of the music. Now, that business aspect of it was in place. And they had done this with so many artists. They had done this with chess records. They had done that as well. Where they uh, uh use um the publishing stuff from uh Muddy Waters and Little Walter, you know Hubert Sumlin, Lightning Hopkins, those cats. Later on, yeah, you got uh, Little Richard because mm -hmm. uh, Little Richard realized he didn't have a legal challenge because he had waited too long. He didn't know he had a right to go to court and fight it. Mm -hmm. So they said the statute of limitations had run, but Little Richard said, I got a voice. I'm just going to stand up here and holler till you give me some money. Right. Well, uh, the thing was about with Little Richard, he got his, he got his race to his music back. He got it through um, this young man who bought the Beatles catalog, Elvis Presley's catalog, and ABC's catalog. And what was included in the ABC catalog was Little Richard's music. And so he gave Little Richard his music back. He didn't sell it to him. He gave it back to him. And that young man was named Michael Jackson. Mm. Okay? Remember that. Michael Jackson got his music and gave it back to Little Richard. He didn't charge him for it. He said, this is yours. Now I hope our listeners are understanding some of the aspects of power in the music. Black people went to white people to get their music played because the whites had control of the record companies and the distribution. 
So that's where the first inequity uh, would set in. You've got a situation where the whites who controlled, in some cases, in most cases, were not fair about what they were doing. But there did come a time when there were black record companies and a a a, a chitlin circuit kind of way of getting uh, distributed. What happened with the music at that point when we had all of these independent record companies, some of whom were black, some of whom were white? Uh, was there a little more level feel at that point? Uh, they, were, they were trying to make inroads on that. It was never really level. <laughs> it was about the hustle. Because the these guys would get a pressing machine. They could get a pressing machine, make their own records, and sell them out the trunk of their cars at certain venues and certain gigs and everything like that. Um, as it went uh, along in music, I believe the development, uh, MC Hammer used to do that. So uh, did there come a point when things were at least almost equal? Well, we made inroads with, with Barry Gordy when they formed uh, Tabla Records. It evolved into Motown, where they would get the, uh, the cream of the crop of black entertainment, school them, groom them, clothe them, uh, educate them, and to make this in-house juggernaut. They had the, the, the publishing, they had the writers, they had the performers, the entertainers, they had the house band, they had the studio. It was all a one-stop shopping in-house production that controlled the narrative, that controlled uh, where the money was going, the distribution and so forth. Of course, they had to deal with European-American entities because they were still like a fledgling company. But they uh, built themselves up into that because so many uh, companies were coming out, independent black companies, and a lot of them were being stifled by these European-Americans who did not want them to get ahead, to keep control of, of the, the narrative of our uh, culture and our music. I think that's what happened with um, Sam Cooke, because he was going to form a record company himself before his demise, you know, under dubious circumstances. Uh, get his book, uh, um, You Send Me. It's a biography written by David, co-written by David Ritz for um, about the life of Sam Cooke. And he was going to buy a pressing machine, a record pressing machine, to make his own records. This was before uh, Barry Gordy formed uh, Motown. But he couldn't do it. You can't stop the progress, especially our creativity. If one of us doesn't do it, the other one's going to come along and do it, and do it better and harder and stronger. Yeah, what about Stax Records? That's, that's an interesting story. They had uh, a lot of entertainers from the South, and then you had uh, the original Philadelphia sound, mm. Gamble and Huff. And, uh, these were the successful black vendors of black music. Exactly right. And they, they, they used that um, Barry Gordy's uh, formula about keeping everything in-house, like the Sounds of Philadelphia. That was all in-house. They had their own writers. You know, they had a staff of writers, not just Gamma. They had a staff of writers. They had a staff of musicians. Teddy Pendergrass was a drummer. Just like in Motown, Marvin Gaye was a drummer. Marvin Gaye played Heard It Through the Grapevine on Gladys Knight's version of Heard It Through the Grapevine. 
Then he recorded and they kept it in the can for so many years. They said, well, let's release it. So Marvin played both versions and it was the biggest seller in Motown history was heard through the grapevine and Marvin Gaye was on both of them. Now, at, at some point, black music, I'm talking now about rhythm and blues. I could also tell the story about jazz, but let's just talk about rhythm and blues. Rhythm and blues was popular, so popular and, and so lucrative in terms of the dollars. As, as we have discussed, there were all kinds of efforts by white people to control the produce and to put white people in as copies of the sound. Uh, it didn't seem to me that black folks at some point didn't seem to care about that. I, I just remember Richmond, we, we used to care about it. I mean, it, it, as, as teenagers, uh, we listened to Marvin Gaye. We didn't listen to Elvis Presley. We, we listened to, to, to all the, the divas who were coming along. We, we heard the Supremes. We, we heard Aretha Franklin. That's what we cherished. But when you start hearing the Beatles and you start hearing uh, the, 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 the other folks who, who, who came up, Bill Haley, when you start bringing in Elvis Presley, at, at what point did we seem to start not caring who sang that music and what they did with it? Not that everybody couldn't have a right to sell it, but when did we stop appreciating the originals as opposed to the copies? Well, the, 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 the copies got more airplay. They got more exposure. If you don't hear something enough, I, I didn't know it even exists or they wanted to make it credible by making it white and playing it like 15, 20 times a day. Because a lot of the white kids, see, the white kids like authentic stuff. That's why they were sneaking the black songs in the house. They were sneaking Little Richard in the house. We had a, a Pat Boone <laughs> record jacket on there, but inside it was ba ba boo ba ba bam boom Okay? <laughs> and they would do this. Because they know it, they, the originality, where it came from, the authenticity of it, the genuineness of it. That's what they want. And that's what the world wants. That's why black culture and our music is the most influential and infectious culture on the planet to this day. From Duke Ellington on up, from Count Basie, Duke Ellington, B.B. King. When the Beatles came here, they said, well, what do you want to do in America? They said, we want to find James Brown. <laughs> and they were going, who? You don't know James Brown? He's an American. And they were looking at him all crazy and everything like that. And then they found out James Brown was and he wanted to find out where John Lennon wanted to find out where Muddy Waters was. Paul McCartney wanted to find James Brown. Because they know that's where the music came from. They want originality, authenticity, and genuineness. And that's what we offer in any kind of form of art and culture that we invent. If we didn't invent it, we reinvented it. So here's a little quote from a book that I have read and reread. It's called The Death of Rhythm and Blues by Nelson George. Nelson George, yeah. He's a great writer. And he says, he says, the black audience's consumerism and restlessness burns out and abandons musical styles Whereas white Americans in the European tradition of supporting former styles 
for the sake of tradition, seem to hold styles dear long before they have stopped evolving. Blacks create and move on. Whites document and recycle. What do you think about that? Well, he's absolutely right. Because um, we get tired of stuff. <laughs> we can play stuff with so we do. That's just us. That's just inherently yeah. us. We have this divine spirit of creativity and evolution of us that we always we play blues and then we get tired of blues and we start playing rock and roll. Then we start getting tired of that and start playing R and B and then we started playing a uh, uh, um funk. Then we started playing psychedelic funk. <laughs> then uh, they took the music out of schools because some of us were becoming Charlie Parkers and Miles Davises and, and Elvin Hayes's and they took the, the music out of school to keep our culture from proliferating and growing. So what do we do? You can't play drums, so what do you do now? Uh-oh, that's a drum? I'm going to do that. So we can't create our own music, so what are we going to do? Get daddy's old records. Get daddy's James and so uh Yeah. And what happened? They invented a totally new art form called hip-hop. Now it's a multi-billion dollar corporation. Something out of nothing, like I said before. Just like with the blues. Something out of nothing. We had jazz, and we became some of the most prolific jazz players in the world. So all of a sudden, we got tired of jazz. We said, we're going to play bebop. What is that? And those jazz guys said, what is that noise you play? And they heard it, and they said, bebop is like hip-hop. Just like the R&B guy said, what is that noise you're playing? It's like the hip-hop says, we playing hip-hop to the R&B guy. We get tired of stuff. We have to evolve. We have to grow. Our cultural growth, our spiritual growth, we're always moving from one thing to another. But the thing is, uh, what I, I feel that uh, what George was saying is that we don't hold on to tradition long enough. But I'm holding on to the blues now. And I'm passing that on to all the young cats I know, like uh, um, like uh, you said with um, Solomon Hicks. He used to sit in with my band when he was 14 years old. Okay? <laughs> and we were playing rock and roll and blues. And it's our tradition. It's our heritage. Now, certain her things that we should hold on to as a part of a monument. Uh, um, an homage to our ancestry and to our history. We have to hold on to certain things. I choose to hold on to the blues. Now, 40 years from now, somebody's going to hold on to LL Cool J as a tradition, because that's how we grow and how we evolve. I mean, since from, from the earliest black musicians, I mean, Beethoven. <laughs> oh, yes, his mother was black, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. So that's black music. Okay. He's the, the longest selling charting musician in history. All right. A black man named Beethoven. The kids used to tease him in Belgium about his ruddy skin and nappy hair. Okay. You know, that's historical fact that was uncovered. <laughs> All right. So that's how we do. So what price do we pay for being so free and cavalier for our music? For example, 
the blues, rhythm and blues. If you don't use it, somebody's going to come along and take it. <laughs> He's going to take it. If you don't use it, you lose it. It's happening as we speak. <laughs> it's like, like they said, um, um, jazz, they, say jazz is they say, well, they say jazz is dead. They say blues is dead. Jazz is dead. Should I say bebop is dead. Even though uh, anything that, that, that's creative, that has a creative force and spirit behind it, can never die. It can just be neglected. Now, if you let somebody just come in and, and just pick up something neglected, if you don't, if you don't uh, uh, please that woman and you leave her, somebody's going to come and get her. <laughs> somebody's going to come and get her. And it'll be nobody's fault but your own. If they take it and say it, you know, uh, co-opted. That's the word I'm looking for. To co-opt it as their own. And they're trying to say all oh, these blues organizations, everything like that. And if nobody's black on the board of directors, <laughs> what's wrong with that picture? I mean, if I can go there and, and, and work with Michael Flatley and for six months and be a tap dancer and go over to um, Ireland and say, I'm going to form the Riverdance Society. They would laugh at me. They, they would laugh. I could dance like like Savion Glover and learn the river dance thing like that. But they and I said, I'm going to form the uh, the the new river dance thing in Ireland. What would they say? They would laugh at me. Are you crazy? You ain't Irish. So how can you come and say you have a blues organization and you're not black? That's black music. Here's a good example. Here's another good example of uh, what you're talking about. I found an article in the New York Times. It says uh, Nashville urged to address racism within its ranks. And here's the lead sentence. Less than 30 minutes after TMZ posted a video of the country star Morgan Whalen using a racial slur, we can imagine what he said, on February 2nd, Mickey Guyton, the only black female country singer signed to a major label, tweeted her reaction, the hate runs deep. Now, right there is a telltale signal. There's only one black woman signed to a major country record. And then they mentioned four black men who I think are probably similarly situated. Uh, but this, this, is the, this is the telltale sign uh, that I want you to comment on. There was a reporter, Andrea Williams, who picked up on that. And she said, where is it? According to Williams, focusing on gender obscures country music's original sin. Because they talked a lot about in this article about how women were abused by people. So according to Williams, focusing on gender obscures country music's original sin. Country was created with the sole intent of marketing to a particular racial demographic, she said. We divided Southern music into white hillbilly records and black race records. This dividing line is as stark now as it was in the 1920s. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Man don't change. He just changes clothes. He didn't change. <laughs> really, the same thing. It's the same pandemic of racism that is passed down from generation to generation. 
See, racism is the original American virus. That's the original pandemic. Yes. Yeah. Because you, it's transmitted through their children. They infect their children with it, and the children grow up with that and keep the disease going. And they compartmentalize and he, and it. <laughs> Instead of, um, they say, uh, um, gospel music when it's black, but it's Christian inspirational music when it's white. <laughs> Same Jesus, though, right? <laughs> Theoretically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but when my records have to be sold in the gospel section, and yours have to be sold in Christian music section. You know, that's division. The Grammys and the Latin Grammys, that's division. That's compartmentalizing things, divide and conquer, to keep that money coming in from different directions. That's what that's about. It's about the money. It's about the money. They made this invention of race. They made that up to keep the money. And we had the uh, the bacon the bacon rebellion, where the indig- the white indentured servants got together with the black captives and formed a rebellion because they were in the same boat. They're both picking cotton. <laughs> They're both ch- chopping tobacco. They were both getting raped. They had to call the British to send some troops over there. The businessmen. That 1% businessmen called the troops over there to quell the rebellion. Those well-trained British soldiers quelled the rebellion. So they said, how can we prevent this from happening again? And so the white a slave owner said, well, we have a commonality with the white indigenous service. So we give them more rights and to keep them away from the blacks because you guys get together, man. If blacks and whites get together, man, you're going to have a regular slide and a family stone up in here. You're going to have a, a, a weather report up in here. You're going to have a chick career and, and return a forever up in here. We can't have that because people say if they, if they get together musically, they might get together on something else politically or socially, economically. We can't have that. So we have to make a division. And so they gave the white indigenous service certain rights and privileges and negated those to the blacks. That's why we have this racial divide now. But it seems that the black music can move over into what is called the general music section. Let's look at it like a record store where you used to go and get your records. Here's 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 pop music. Here's black music. Here's country music. It seems like the black section of the records pile has gone over and into the popular, and we don't even see black anymore. All we see is something called pop. Right. <laughs> what happened there? It's it's co-opted. <laughs> that, that pop. That op is co-opt. <laughs> That they should call it <laughs> pop music. And so you sell a certain amount of millions of copies or you go platinum, and all of a sudden, what they call crossover. And that was uh, Barry Gordy's thing, to cross over. That was his main idea. He wanted to get black music into mainstream America to get some mainstream money. I mean, they, they made money off of us all this time. It's time we made money off of them. Like 75% of rap records now are bought by white kids. 75%. Okay? That's why we got these Jay-Zs and Diddy's, <laughs> you know, becoming billionaires because they know how to work the, how to work the thing, how it works. And that evolved from what Barry Gordy and Jackie Wilson and Sam Cooke had devised 
back in the day and brought it up right here to this millennium and it's going to grow it's going to grow after that even even more than these guys have these guys man billion, approaching billionaire status now you have some brothers going to get tens of billions of dollars they're going for a trillion dollars now that's what they're doing now so we then jeopardize the integrity of the sound to get paid more money. No, no, no. We're not jeopardizing integrity. We, we, we're giving it to them straight. We're giving it to them raw. We're giving it to them straight. Like hip-hop and stuff like that, it's straight up and down. This They're not trying to put strings or violins on it like they did Ray Charles. <laughs> they're giving the hardcore, straight-up, authentic stuff. That's the white folks love, straight-up, authentic, hardcore stuff. That's why all those white folks came up to Harlem back in the day, came to Lennox Lounge, the Red Rooster. They came there to Casablanca and, and uh, um, Small's Paradise. They missed the bees. They wanted to hear the real deal. They can go downstairs at, downtown and, and, and hear uh, Dave Brubeck, great musician. <laughs> but when you come uptown, <laughs> you want to hear some Herbie Hancock or some uh, Art Tatum or something like that. You could only get that from us. They want the authenticity, the realness, the divine creativity that we have in us as a people. We can make something out of nothing. How can a guy with a sixth grade education and make so, a, 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 a invent a gas mask <laughs> and a hair straightener and a traffic light with a sixth grade education? That's, that's, that's divine genius. That's what we have inherent in all of us. That's why when they took the music out of the schools, they invented hip hop. They invented, the kid wanted to play drums all his life. He heard Elvin Jones, he heard Philly Joe Jones and, and uh, uh, um, Billy Cobb. He go, I want to play drums. There were no more drum program in school. So what did he do? <laughs> he made up a beatbox, a human beatbox. Now that's one of the most prolific art forms in the world today because they didn't let him play drums. They didn't let him be, be uh, 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 Johnny Pacheco. They wouldn't let him do that. So what we did, we made something out of nothing. That's what we do. The message here that we're going to be left with, because we've run out of time, unfortunately, the message here is that the music is going to evolve whether we like it or not. Mm -hmm. So what happened to the blues? It became what it became and now we see hip-hop as the latest invention of creative people mm -hmm. i want to thank you captain for joining me today thanks so much Jerry. It's my uh, pleasure. we've had a good time i'd like to also say that you can uh get some more of my background and some more music at my new website keep the captain gamble.com thank you man for having me i really enjoyed this doing this it was a wonderful enlightening experience for me Thank you, Captain, and we'll see you later you, on. I'm very happy to be your host. If you don't see me around, it's because a black man's work is never done. Bye-bye. <laughs>